On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome back to the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I'm your host. Today we conclude our episode, Conversations in Care, Conquering Fears, between CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, Trent Cockrum, and hospice social worker, Caroline Oxford, with a candid discussion regarding spiritual care for patients and families approaching end of life. Let's rejoin the conversation. So Caroline, I want to switch gears just a little bit. Um, and uh, to the extent this might be a little on the spot, I apologize. But you know, you you are unique in the fact that you hold both a master's degree in social work and also a master's degree in divinity. Um, and you know, I want to talk a little bit, if we if you'll indulge me, about the sort of spiritual considerations um, at, at end of life. Um, you know, a chaplain is a part of the team, right? Um, and, but uh, much like social work, um, when we begin to think about uh, chaplains, we, we might conjure a different notion. Um, might you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, again, depending on what people's past experience has been, uh, maybe if they've never had an interaction with a chaplain, they may, um, what may come to mind is more like a pastor of a certain church or, uh, you know, a leader of a specific congregation. Um, and chaplains, I think, differ from, from that in a couple ways. One is that um, a pastor at your church, for example, has a very specific background and training um, in you know, a, a faith tradition, a denomination, um, and it's it's very specific to that church or that congregation. Um, whereas um, chaplains have tr- much broader training and, and really are trained to um, meet patients and families wherever they are in terms of their faith background, past experience, church membership, anything like that. Um, to sort of find out um, what is important to them or or helpful to them in terms of their spiritual life um, and then take those things and kind of explore that, expound on that, use that as a source of um, spiritual counseling or spiritual support as they are approaching the end of their lives. Um, And then secondly, another sort of distinction is um, you can think of it as pastors or um, congregation leaders are generalists. So they um, do lots of different types of things in their role as a pastor. They preach, they oversee a budget and staff, they do pastoral care, um, they teach. Whereas chaplains, um, instead of being generalists, are more like specialists. So they have very specific training in pastoral care, and in the case of a hospice chaplain, pastoral care for patients and families um, who are approaching the end of their life. That's a great way to uh, describe it. Does everybody get a chaplain? No. So um, everyone is offered a chaplain um, and anyone can choose to have a chaplain, but it's certainly not a requirement. It's up to that patient and family. And, um, you know, sometimes when we first meet patients and families, they are very overwhelmed with all these 
new people coming into their house all at once trying to get to know them. And so it's not uncommon for folks to maybe at first say, you know, not right now, I'm not quite ready for a chaplain um, or, you know, to add other members to the team. But then once they sort of settle in, um, do a routine with us and getting to know us and our organization, um, then they say, okay, actually, um, you know, I think a chaplain would be really helpful, or maybe I will come to them and say, you know, have you thought any more about um, having a chaplain to get involved? Mm. So what might, you know, what are the things in your experience that actually, that you've observed that actually lead people to choose a, a chaplain or to invite a chaplain into, into, their, mm -hmm. their, care, into their, their care environment? Yeah, so I think, you know, a few different reasons. I think um, for a lot of people, their faith or belief system is very important to them and has kind of created a foundation or a framework for their life and how they see their life and how they see the world. Um, and so when we're at a point where we are kind of confronting our um, frailty or our mortality, a lot of those considerations become much more um, relevant and pertinent to this moment. And it's really helpful for folks to be able to have someone who's specially trained in talking through those issues, tapping into whatever that faith background is in a way that is going to um, help them through this time, whether that is scriptures that they um, that have been important to them or certain types of music, um, certain types of prayers. Um, those are just can often for a lot of people be really powerful during this time and bring a lot of um, peace and comfort. Um, so I think that's a big reason that people um, would choose to have a chaplain involved. Other things, you know, sometimes people are really struggling with things, um, you know, that they have been harmed by someone or even harmed by a faith tradition and they're looking for some kind of reconciliation or um, to give or receive forgiveness. Um, and that has become important to them during this time. And so chaplains are really well suited to um, help them through those things as well. You know, it's interesting. We know from a, I think it was a 2016 or so study uh, by uh, Harvard Medical School that um, uh, conversations with uh, between uh, spiritual advisors, um, uh, pastors, folks in the pastoral care space, pe people who are congregational leaders um, in churches, um, absent of any uh, of any conversations that they may have with their congregants, um, congregants are oftentimes more likely, in the absence of a conversation, having had a conversation about uh, end of life. Um, and their needs, wants, and priorities, they are oftentimes even more likely to receive care that is inconsistent with their needs, wants, and priorities, which I, I think is sort of goes to all the things that you're talking about related to the importance of the spiritual dimension um, of care. You know, as a, as a non-denominational organization, we don't, we're not supported by any organized faith group or, or, or church, um, you know, we have a responsibility to the community at large and our community spans eight counties. We'll care for 2000 patients um, in, this, in this year. 
um, across our uh, Hospice of the Piedmont service area and our affiliate Hospice of Randolph service area. And what's so interesting um, is that that is a very broad community. It's incredibly diverse. Um, you know, what we know is that disease and illness, um, and certainly more, more pointedly, death and dying, um, uh, um, affects everyone from every socioeconomic group and every faith tradition and spiritual, um, you know, um, uh, spiritual belief. And so, you know, how, how is it that we navigate that as a, as a chaplain? How, how, does, how does that work? Sure. Um, and I'll just say, I think what you just said, that we truly get to work with every type of person, every, you know, people of all backgrounds, all different situations. I think that is something that is just really cool about the work that we do is that we literally serve every person uh, who needs our care and our services. And we take that very seriously that we um, are meeting them where they are, that we're not um, putting any of our own personal opinions or religious beliefs or any, any other type of belief onto them. Um, and that includes our chaplains. And so they are well-trained and experienced in working with people of all different backgrounds, all different faiths, denominations, people of no faith. Actually, I've heard, you know, chaplains say that often some of their best conversations come with people or are, have been with uh, patients who um, would say that they are agnostic or not really affiliated with a certain religious tradition. So, so in that same context, I mean, how do, you know, that, that's a pretty broad consideration. I know from, from just from knowing um, as the leader of, of this organization that we've cared for, um, all of the normal faith traditions that we might think about, you know, I grew up in this area, so Methodist and Baptist and, um, and Episcopalian and Presbyterian, all of those folks, but we've also taken care of Buddhists and we've also taken care of, as you mentioned, agnostics, and we've also taken care of um, uh, uh, Muslims and we've taken care of people from every faith tradition because it exists in our community and that's what we exist to do is to meet people where they are spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And, um, you know, might you talk a little bit about sort of how maybe we minister in the non-ecumenical sense, so in the non-religious context, um, to, to patients and families from differing beliefs and how we help them, you know, make sense of death and dying in a, in a spiritual context? Sure, yeah, so um, I think first of all, we all work to sort of enter a patient's home with some humility and recognizing that we um, probably do differ in our background in some way, whether that's religious or otherwise. Um, and so really just, again, putting the focus back on them, sort of having a spirit of curiosity about what is their belief system, what is important to them, um, and sort of using that as a starting point. Um, and then, you know, I think there are also some, um, some things that are just universal. M many people, regardless of their religious background, would agree that the process of dying and saying goodbye to loved ones um, is much more than just a medical or physical process. It is a spiritual process. And, um, you know, so just 
kind of walking through some of that, helping people know how to say goodbye, um, helping people work through, you know, what do we believe or what do you believe about what comes after death, the afterlife? These are all questions that maybe we have vaguely thought about or talked about, but when a person is actually, you know, in that situation that they have become a hospice patient, um, those questions often kind of become more urgent and more focused. Um, and so the chaplains, again, are just very um, well-suited and well-trained to um, help them process whatever questions they have and um, talk through those issues in whatever way is most helpful and supportive to them. Sure, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, that's fascinating, Caroline. I mean, it is interesting to, to think that our community is so incredibly diverse and yet without question every year we are able to meet the needs of the many thousands of patients that we care for. Um, and again, I think you so, so artfully articulated to meet them wherever they are. Um, you know, I have a couple final questions um, and uh, I know I've, I've, I've asked you to talk a lot, so I, I promise um, we'll, we'll wind this down in, in the next bit. Um, you know, is there a case that really stands out to you um, over the years and why? Yeah, so there's, um, you know, we serve a lot of people every year. So there's so many um, patients and stories and moments that kind of stick with me. But um, I think the cases that tend to stand out the most um, are the ones where we, um, sort of start from scratch with a family who maybe thinks we have no idea what we're doing, we're never gonna be able to do this. Um, and we kind of empower them and help them realize um, that they can with our support. And then they actually, that comes to fruition and they prove to themselves that they, they are able to, to care for their loved one. Um, I think specifically of, I had a patient who had, um, when I first met her, had just moved here from another state to live with um, her sister to care for her. Um, so they didn't, because she had just moved, They she didn't have a lot of other support in the area, friends or family that she knew that could help. And so her sister was very overwhelmed, you know, saying, I really want to be able to do this for my sister, but I'm just not sure it's, I'm going to be able to make it work. Um, but then we were able to, you know, help her get some additional caregivers. And we had, um, you know, myself and the chaplain involved to sort of um, just provide both of them with the support and reassurance um, and some volunteers to kind of help come in and give the sister a break. So sort of pulling the whole team in to like really just pull together and pull them through to kind of meet um, what their goals were. Well, well thank you. You know, um, Again, I, I can't stress enough how you just described this sort of support network, this intraconnected support network, both among all of the members of the of the of the hospice care team, but then more importantly for the support that it actually provides to the um, to the to the patient and family, almost you know like a incredibly warm embrace. I mean, that's a, a way I think to sort of artfully describe it. Um, you know, Caroline, my last question for you today um, is for the benefit of the folks who are watching this today or folks who might be watching this or listening to this later, what are the 
maybe one or two things that you really want people to take away from our conversation today? Um, so first of all, I would say that social workers don't just work um, at social services. We're not, I'm not coming to check on your kids or um, check the cleanliness of your house. No, like definitely we do not care about those things. Um, I mean, we care about your kids, but um, so that, but then also I think just um, kind of that we want to give people permission, whether that's people we are caring for in our service or just people in the community um, to just ha have these conversations and recognize that um, talking about illness and death and dying is um, can be scary and can be sad and that's normal um, but that it um, is also a good thing to just you know make these conversations, the more you talk about it, the less scary it is. And the more you kind of put it out there. Um, and, you know, we've been sort of talking about fear. And so I think definitely there's not um, a switch to flip to say, oh, you know, we'll do these three things and you're not afraid anymore. But I think just sort of being with people, creating that space for people um, goes a long way and sort of, um, you know, like we've been talking about meeting people where they are and sort of helping um, navigate where where they want to go. Um, so I think whether it's us creating that space or someone who's watching, you know, knows someone who is, um, you know, experiencing an illness or approaching the end of their life, just to sort of not be afraid to walk into that space and have those conversations. Well, you know, that's an incredibly powerful um, thought, you know, to me, it sounds like you're uh, really giving the folks who are tuning into us, um, who might themselves sort of be wondering about who we are and what we do as an organization. Um, but, but you're giving them or, or helping them even to, to, to give others permission and empowering them um, to, to get over perhaps some initial fears. Um, and uh, that, that, that everything that we do, nothing that we do, in fact, is, is fearful um, or that is generated from a place of fear. In fact, if anything, we help you, it sounds like from your conversation, help folks sort of assemble those sort of um, blocks, if you will, into something that actually creates a, a, a really sturdy foundation of, 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 of support. Um, from a lot of different folks, but certainly um, as we've had our conversation today from social workers and chaplains. Thank you for joining us for part two of our discussion, Conversations and Care, Conquering Fears. Join us next time for Conversations and Care, Working Together, as CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, Trent Cockrum, and hospice nurse, Lynette White, address the interdisciplinary work of the hospice care team and how this collaboration benefits those receiving care. Until then, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.